They've got a load of molecular biologists and data scientists whose job it is to scan a load of bizarre plants that perhaps we don't already use regularly in our food. More from Olivia Solon, friend of the show, uh, later as she joins us to talk about food technology, but very specific type of food technology. Extremely exciting. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. And I'm Ian Morris. And before we delve into the world of Olivia's journalism, let's start with this week's news. And one of the things that has been getting a lot of people hot under the collar, and indeed many parts of their bodies are suspected to have risen in temperature to the level that is required for heavy perspiration um, because Twitter and specifically its new CEO, Jack Dorsey, has started experimenting with the timeline. Why is this important? I hear you cry inside your head. Let me explain to you. Up to now, mostly Twitter shows you the latest tweets at the top of the page when you log in or when you start your app. What it's going to start doing or start experimenting with is not doing that. So the thing that a lot of people who use Twitter uh, because, you know, like, uh, they're, they're going to maybe stop doing that in order to get the people who don't use Twitter and who aren't on Twitter to start using Twitter. The old switcheroo, you might say, get rid of the people who are using it now, bring in the people who have chosen not to use it at all. At least, Ian, clarify, is that the logic? Am I reading well, this correctly? Here's the thing with Twitter, right? They're not growing. They've stalled um, and that's bad. That's really bad. I mean, they've got more than enough money in the bank thanks to all their investment. Um, but the problem is, if you're not growing, then you've really got a big struggle ahead of you because that's just what a, you know a, a healthy business, especially given that Twitter doesn't have a huge number of users. It's uh, what is it? Something like three hundred million or something, or is it is it more than that? Three hundred million. Yeah. So, so that I mean, that was what I thought. So basically, that is fewer users than. Well, use almost anything else. I mean, WhatsApp's a billion. Facebook's, what is it? How many people use Facebook now? 1.3 billion 1. 3 now. Billion. So, you know, I mean, okay, these are all different products. You can't compare apples to oranges. Um, but Twitter should be bigger. Um, given the use of it, given what it's good for, given the fact that it's um, a news information source, it's a, it's a way to communicate with friends, it's all that, you know, it's a, I, I've always, well, I haven't always, I've, I've believed in Twitter for a very long time. Um, but I do find it very frustrating and they do keep doing things that seem designed to annoy existing users. And that's a bit of a concern. I think the annoying the existing users is an unfortunate side effect of what they're trying to do, which is to increase the relevance of Twitter outside of its existing user base, because they, as you say, they need to attract new users. I mean, personally, I'm still surprised that they haven't been bought by the likes of somebody like Nielsen or Comscore or, or some of these monitoring people. I mean, Twitter seems to be used, if you're outside of the journalism world and you're not just following celebrities, it seems to be television and live broadcasts that people flock to Twitter in order to feel like they're part of. And Twitter holds huge amounts of data for that group of people. You could probably get some really accurate to the second measurements of television over the course of, a, a, well, a minute, an hour a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever, um, which is probably quite interesting to Lots the likes of companies of doing that. Nielsen. Indeed, absolutely. But but in terms of trying to figure out where Twitter should be pointing towards, that's one thing that I'm surprised hasn't happened already on a much bigger scale. But we're not specifically talking about Twitter today to talk about the timeline changes, although we will come back to one interesting aspect of it that Ian and I discovered literally minutes before starting recording the show. 
I wanted to try and find some way that this affected the UK. And one of the ways that it's going to affect the UK, or at least could affect the UK, is that the Transport for London Authority, the Transport Authority in London, which I suppose by the name is fairly self-evident, um, is obviously concerned by the change in Twitter's uh, strategic direction because TFL uses Twitter very, very heavily to give live updates about the tube network and the bus network and, you know, the horse and cart network that operates around London. Um, and uh, they they posted a blog the other day that they subsequently took down, but I've looked up a Google cache for this blog post. And what they were outlining is that essentially they are bit nervous about Twitter's change in direction. And uh, I'm going to quote something uh, here from the archived, now not online version of uh, the blog post from TFL. This was written uh, originally by a guy called Steven Gutierrez from TFL. He says, um, our social media mission remains the same as it ever was with all our activity designed to empower customers through accurate and timely information, customer service and provision of travel tools. However, in the last few years, Twitter has introduced various changes to the way it serves content to its users, and these have impacted upon our ability to reliably deliver these real-time status updates to our followers. Now selected content on Twitter is shown out of sequence, we will reduce the amount of minor alerts and focus on providing up-to-the-minute alerts for major issues, as well as a renewed focus on customer service across our various accounts. Our, our team, blah, 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 and then it goes on to give you a, a fairly interesting and comprehensive summary of um, Twitter's changes over the last few years and how TFL has reacted to them. Now, they've taken this blog post down and they replaced it um, with a new blog um, that read uh, our use of social media. And a different person wrote this one, Phil Young. He wrote, uh, we recently shared some thinking about how we provide the best service to our customers via Twitter. This has been taken as suggesting we're stepping back from providing the full range of information we currently provide our customers and that we object in some way to the changes being proposed to Twitter. That was not our intention, so we've taken down the post. We're not going to make any immediate changes to the current range of information we put out on Twitter. Um, and then I'll paraphrase the next bit. But he says, we're working with Twitter to ensure that we make the best use of their plat platform and bring customers the message they want to receive. They've had lots of ideas. They're going to keep people updated. Now, the subtext, or rather the, the step-back analysis of all this, is that... Twitter changing the way that it changes a timeline or, or organizes a timeline is having a very real effect outside of just Twitter. This isn't just about um, a change to what people see when they log in. This is having transport authorities thinking, guys, people use Twitter. People like this system. They're changing it. This has got to change the way that we think about updating a capital on delays and transport, which I just think is is a fascinating repercussion um, and something that I can't imagine Twitter necessarily predicted happening. What would you think, Ian? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, this is the thing, isn't it? I, I, for, for things like that, where you're, you're providing news on a you know an, an immediate basis, you have to kind of think that Twitter should be smart enough to see that and, uh, I hate to use this word, surface it um oh god i'm gonna to have to have myself shot now um but because i think really that the, the key to twitter is obviously yeah that it's they keep adding in these things don't they like they, they add in while you were away and everyone keeps cl clicking the cross button getting rid of it saying no i don't value this 
and Twitter keeps carrying on. But there's no reason that they can't offer people these options and let them define Twitter to be the service that they want it to be. So I don't know, perhaps that could be people could add in certain accounts that would always be right at the top. Um, so that could be things like that. So news, maybe BBC News or something like that. And, TFL and alerts. TFL. Exactly. So that would make sense, wouldn't it? I think the thing about Twitter is that they seem to be trying very hard to make the service appealing to a lot of people, but they're not actually doing things that will either draw new people in or um, it will keep the existing users happy. And obviously, uh, you know, 300 million users is not to be sniffed at. Um, and you don't want to upset the ones you've got. I think that's very well, true, and I think you're highlighting something that we could expand on a little bit. Um, aside from just the options, which uh, giving the option to the users, we'll come back to that in a second. But the, the, the fact is that tweets are not all born equally. Some tweets are celebrities talking about what they did the previous evening. Some tweets are about journalists tweeting links to their podcasts. And yep. some tweets are about um, earthquakes and TFL uh, emergency status alerts and things like that. And so it strikes me that a potential way to get around this is to allow down the line users to opt in to select certain types of tweets that are prioritized. For example, travel alerts or emergency alerts. And this is something that Facebook does. And I believe Twitter does for emergencies. Like it, it can be used to ping something that is kind of a like a disaster level tweet. Yeah, um, and then you've got your normal, you know, average regular um, tweets as well. And I think if you were able to do that, and maybe as well if you were able to uh, geo-target those alerts. So obviously you could you could pick London or UK-based uh, travel or emergency alerts. Then those are the kinds of things that you could still see in real time. But at the moment, the only option that we're seeing, and this goes back to what Ian and I just discovered before the show, is to either be shown out-of-sequence tweets to begin with or not. And the only thing that we've been able to work out is that some people have got the option to enable this or to opt into these out-of-sequence tweets. My my main account, which is a verified account, does have that option, whereas one of my other accounts that I use for tweeting about a game and gaming stuff does not have that option. So it seems like it could be something they're testing on uh, accounts that have certain statuses, either verified or of a high follower account or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean they do. They always they always don't roll things out to everyone at the same time. Um, they have quite a slow testing process. I, I find it quite frustrating with Twitter, really, because what they tend to do is announce a thing um, and then fail to deliver it to everyone in, in any meaningful time. Yeah, uh, that's extremely frustrating as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I definitely see where they're going. I see that they want to be more like Facebook. Um, I, and I don't mean in what in the service they provide. I mean, um, Facebook's very good, isn't it, with giving you a sort of context-sensitive news feed. Well, I, I hear different things about this. I personally don't particularly think Facebook is great. But I, th I, I hear that if you go through Facebook and like brands... Um, so, you know, say you're, you know, you like a certain kind of uh, music, you like a certain kind of, um, I don't know, something or other, uh, and you f follow companies like BBC News or whatever, um, then eventually what you get is a really nice uh, sort of customised news feed that gives you what you want out of Facebook. I could see Twitter being better for that, 
but I think it needs some user input in order to make it so. Yeah. And Facebook is definitely, we could argue about the usefulness of Facebook, but I think Facebook is is sort of an interesting representative, uh, representation of the real world, which is that if you run naked into the street screaming about the colonel and then run into a KFC and start beating up all the chickens and run out again, the world will react differently to you in future. Um, yes. And the same is true on Facebook. If you go in and interfere and cause a scene and start clicking on everything and replying and being generally very addicted to that, uh, way of existing in the digital world, then Facebook will know a lot more about what to give you. Um, you know, medical help, in my example, perhaps. <laughs> um, but but Twitter is a different beast. And, and part of the problem, I think, here as well, aside from the effect that it has on things like how TFL uh, wants to use it as a source of updating its, uh, its customers, um, you know, this feels like more of a shareholder issue and if Twitter wasn't under such pressure to maintain its share price, which has dropped quite dramatically in recent times, uh, and to increase its user base, then would it be trying to basically dilute itself in order to appeal to as many people as possible? Um, and I think that it's symptomatic of getting to that certain point where it just becomes impossible to be the thing that everyone who was with it at the beginning wanted it to be. Um, you know, we've we've seen that happen in terrible ways. MySpace, which just got bought again by Timing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they just want data. That's kind of you know, that's kind of dark stuff, isn't it? That they're doing there. And that's fine. But I think we've seen time and time again that a lot of companies, you know, that the, it's kind of like going through school. You have to go to school till you're 16. I'm talking about the UK, of course, here. And then maybe you do A levels, and maybe take a year out. Maybe you go to university. Then you get maybe do a postdoc or master's and then internships and a job and blah, blah, blah. And it's all kind of, it's laid out for you. And the same is true in the corporate world that you you start up something good and you do things and the bigger you get, the less nimble you get and the less ability from people who are in charge of you um, give you in order to stay true to your roots or, or what have you. And I think Twitter is is really suffering from this and seeing it on this side of the pond from, you know, TFL, obviously retracting their blog post but nonetheless obviously was the result of some serious thinking um before it was posted it, it just goes to show that twitter is a very deep part of the world and it's not just about tweets and celebrities and changing that has really serious ramifications outside of silicon valley and uh, and around the world so we'll have to keep our eye on it and if you have any thoughts on this, do let us know. Podcast at natelangson.com. Ian, it's, uh, we're going to be publishing this on Valentine's Day. It seems like a great time to talk about size. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about the size of the UK's gaming industry, which I'm sure everybody there predicted um there were some figures released this week that was uh, reported on wired in fact um released by the ukie uk's game trade body according to matt cammon who wrote this and uh, the data show that the british games market is now worth 4.193 billion pounds which in this article at least represents a tw- uh, 210 million pound per year growth over 2014 that's 5% year on year increase now this is amazing right Ian i mean mm. the uk has produced some incredible gaming 
triumphs, you know, not least of which Grand Theft Auto. Well, people don't realise, though, do they? That they don't they don't associate Grand Theft Auto with the UK. And I mean, obviously, you know, it's part of a very big company that's, you know, global. Uh, but yeah, it was a it's a it's always been a, a Scottish product, hasn't it? Really? It was always came out of Rockstar North. So, you know, we should be proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. And even more recently, things like Candy Crush or um, even things like Fable, you know, Peter Molyneux making, you know, fantastic games over the years in the roleplay world. You know, some amazing stuff that comes out of the UK and I'm just scratching the surface here. It's interesting, isn't it? it I, we've, we've been, well, we haven't been lucky. I think we, I think actually there was one thing, there was one turning point, wasn't there? Um, and I think the BBC Micro was a huge part of um, this country having a real, um, not just a, not just a sort of computing and gaming sort of industry, but actually people who were getting access to computers much earlier than they, you know, than maybe other countries um, and I think that's been hugely important. You look at things like you know, Elite and stuff like that. You know, these are huge achievements yeah. um, that started on particularly the BBC. Um, well, we can so, actually we can actually break it down a little bit. Um, yeah. we, we've got some numbers here that um, now this I, I should point out. I, I neglected to at the beginning that this was a co-publication with MCV, which is the Computer Video Games uh, Trade Publication. And they, I mean, they actually more dramatically started off their report with the words 2015 was the biggest year in UK games industry history, which frankly doesn't surprise me to a certain extent, but it's still a nice thing to see. It's like, it's like when you go and see Apple about their new products and they say, this is our best iPhone yet. And you're like, well, yeah, obviously you weren't going to make it worse, were you? Well, you say that, but <laughs> I mean, this, the, these reports aren't mandated to only put press releases out about good things. Well, no, that is true. But um, we can break it down a bit. So. Uh, Obviously, the, the the headline figure there, four point one nine billion. Um, let's just call it four billion for the sake of ease. Uh, comprised of quite a few broken down pieces of news. Um, the biggest contributor to that four billion in the UK was the digital console and PC market. Um, so that's your uh, non boxed copies of things. So that's your apps. I think. Oh no, apps. I think is separate to that. Sorry, but this is your Steam downloads and your you know digitally purchased games stuff like that. Which that is was, huge. I yeah. Mean, it's well, it's the biggest. It's so easy. Yeah, it's the biggest piece of this pie. One point two billion. Um, boxed software came in next, which was down year on year. No surprises there. That was nine hundred and four million pounds. Mobile gaming was six hundred and sixty four million pounds. Console hardware down twenty five percent on twenty fourteen, uh, and that was six point uh, six hundred eighty nine million pounds. There are a bunch of other things that are probably worth pointing out. Movies and soundtracks, six point nine million pounds. <laughs> wow, that was up twenty six point nine percent. But next to it, in terms of significance, I think books and magazines. So this is things like guides for games down thirty percent, nearly twenty nine point one percent, worth sixteen point three million pounds. YouTube has killed that, hasn't it? Completely I, killed it. Took the words out of my mouth. Absolutely, it's all about it's all about YouTube. But to be fair, it's I guess it's what you want, isn't it? You don't want to look at a few, you know, static images of a game when you can watch someone playing as much or as little as you want and you know, get someone actually get to see how you solve a problem if you're stuck. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, um, and the last one I wanted to point out here, because I think, again, this represents another change. Peripherals and accessories. These are up uh, 24.6%, worth £360 million in the UK now. Now, this is things like your games controllers. And now it stands to reason that this would be worth a bit because we have new consoles. But I also think that the contribution of 
accessories for mobile devices um, has really contributed towards this. We've seen a large number of uh, uh, manufacturers now making console uh, console equivalent controllers for things like iPads and Android devices and stuff like this. And I think that's contributed quite significantly to to this figure. Although that is hypothetical, it's not in the report because I haven't seen it broken down to that extent yet. But either way, it's something that I certainly see a lot more of in shops now than I ever did before. So I think it'll be an interesting one to look at next year to see and if that's risen also, again. Also, it's interesting to point out as well, isn't it, that there's that what's that um, space sim game, the name of which I keep forgetting. Starcraft. Uh, yeah. No, well, no, the one that's raised a hundred million on. Um... Uh, as a as a kickstarted product, oh, project, uh, um, yes, I know the one you mean. The name has escaped the, me. By the guy who did uh, was it Wing Commander years ago? Oh, how could we have forgotten this? Um, but uh, anyway, so you know that a hundred million pound, a hundred million dollars, I think. Uh, I mean, Star Citizen, Star Citizen. That's exactly you Star it, yeah. something. Um, and, but you know that that alone is. I, I, obviously, I have some very particular opinions about that game that we won't get into now. Awesome. Um, but even just ignoring all those, that's a fantastic amount of money to raise for a game, and it just proves that people will pay, especially if you're going to cater to a niche that's underserved. Um, so you know, we, I think this is we're going to see this just go up and up and up. I think people have money to spend; they'll probably switch from traditional media to this. I think because games are just becoming so good now um you know we're obviously again it's it's a bit like stating the obvious isn't it but games are better this year than they were last year and that won't change for some time to come well we're going to leave it there for that topic podcast at natelikeson.com that is where you can deposit your opinions well i'm throbbing with excitement to be sitting here with somebody with a voice Long-time listeners and fans of the Wired podcast will remember it's Olivia Solon. Hello, you missed the underscore, but I no longer have it. Yes, the Olivia underscore Solon was sort of lost in uh, the translation. I think it was kept in storage uh, when you moved to the US. Now, the reason that you're you're here is um, rather fitting given our history with, with Wired. You've got a feature out in Wired magazine this week talking about a company called Hampton Creek, which I'd never heard of. And doesn't immediately sound like it has a tech angle because they are a food business. And uh, well, in fact, rather than me explain it, why don't you explain what Hampton Creek is before we get into talking a little bit about what the tech angle is here? Yeah, so Hampton Creek is a company that's trying to change the way we make our food um, to be less reliant on animal-based foods, which are generally a bit of a drain on the environment, and more reliant on interesting plant-based foods. But they're trying, instead of just going for sort of the vegan market, they're trying to make the average person eat food that is vegan um, by making it super delicious and affordable. Uh, And the first thing they started with was mayonnaise with a product called Just Mayo, but they're kind of moving into things like cookies and dressings and an egg uh, substitute as well. I know there's been um, quite an interesting side of this story, specifically involving eggs, partly because of the huge business involved in in eggs. And I think that globally, or even probably just in the US, hens produce nearly 2 trillion eggs a year, which is just a staggering, staggering number. But the protein that you get from an egg is massively outweighed by the amount of protein it takes for a chicken to create one or or something along those lines. So this is something this company thinks it can make a real difference with, specifically with eggs, I think. 
Yeah, so eggs are in everything. And I think as you identified, you know, it takes a lot of resources to make a chicken and then it takes even more resources to get the chicken to lay the eggs. So they're trying to find, you know, a vegan alternative um, that doesn't use any animals uh, to, uh, to the egg. And um, and there's this hilarious battle going on with with I guess you'd call it Big Egg, uh, the American Egg Board, who are particularly worried about what um, Hampton Creek is doing, and so they've been having the, this extraordinary smear campaign, both both battling each other really, um, where the American Egg Board has been trying to dig up dirt on Hampton Creek and vice versa. And obviously, the reason we're talking about this um, is because. Quite often what we find is that large Silicon Valley or American-based businesses that do something very dramatic uh, do end up coming to the UK and Europe. One example would be the company Soylent, which is, for me, a fantastic idea. It's allowing somebody to replace basically all their meals with a single kind of super smoothie drink that gives you all the nutrients you need, customized to your body size, uh, which is fantastic because I think eating is just an incredible waste of time. And they have announced that they are doing incredibly well from their business and they're now looking to expand into Europe. If Hampton Creek can do what it's doing and continue to do what it's doing, then maybe the UK's food industry needs to take notice. But I wanted to go back just a little bit to talk about these these smear campaigns and this controversy. I mean, why exactly are why is Big Egg being such a chicken? Why are they so worried? Big Egg is worried that it's going to lose business to Hampton Creek. And it's not just about selling eggs in, in cartons, but it's selling eggs to massive food companies like Kraft. And, and they already are starting to see signs that they could be losing this business. I think um, Hampton Creek's done some deals with some big food suppliers uh, to replace the eggs with their kind of fake egg substitutes in things like cake mixes. Um, so the American Egg Board's obviously worried about this and as a result has been carrying out some rather underhand tactics. Yes, there was uh, a piece in your in your feature that contained uh, some emails that were not leaked but but released through a freedom of information request uh, where at least one person joked about putting a hit on the CEO um, whose whose name I've Josh Tetrick. Josh Tetrick. Um, it was probably a joke. I'm sure it was a joke, but still interesting to see the severity that they that they um, they, they thought the threat was to the the big egg business. Um, let's talk about tech. We're we're not a food podcast, and uh, I don't really care about food that much. I'm more interested in just how things are changing as a result of technology. They've got an R and D lab. So what are they doing in there? How do they produce this stuff? Yeah, so the tech aspect is about identifying the plant proteins that they can use as substitutes for animal-based proteins. So they've got a load of molecular biologists and data scientists whose job it is to scan a load of bizarre plants that perhaps we don't already use regularly in our food and try and find um, properties that these um, proteins have that could be used to recreate the sort of mouthfeel, the flavour and the texture that we love about foods that have loads of butter and eggs and other animal products in them. There's about 60 or between 60 and 90 people I think now I, I saw recently working at Hampton Creek. So still quite a small company um, but making quite a lot of big differences potentially to the world. Now, do you think that food companies in general get the attention they deserve from investors and from other businesses? Because there's so much tech involved in so much 
food now, and yet you had, generally what we hear is there are tech companies investing in things like Deliveroo and Just Eat or the ordering system, or it's on the more scientific side, which is lab-grown meat and creating new meat. This sort of exists somewhere in the middle of that, and it doesn't feel like we see companies like this often enough getting attention from the tech world. Do, do you know why that is? Is that changing? I think food generally has been seen as something a bit of a challenging thing to invest in because it's perishable. You often have to have huge stockpiles of things before you sell them. Um, And the interesting thing in this case with Hampton Creek is that most people, when they eat their food, don't want to hear about the technology. You know, Unilever and all these other big food companies do probably have labs that are quite similar to Hampton Creek, but they don't talk about it. They just put a little picture of an animal on the packaging and everyone thinks it's grown in the little lovely farm in the countryside. But with Hampton Creek, they've been trying to get investment from Silicon Valley, and that's where, you know, they're based in San Francisco. So that's why they've really hammed up, sorry, excuse the pun, the the tech side, the molecular biology side, this sort of scanning process that that most consumers don't want to know about. This week, there was um, another indication that some of this is changing. There's a, a company, a startup called FarmDrop, which recently, I mean, this week, in fact, got a, another three million pounds of funding. It's, a, it's based in London, and they're trying to connect farmers directly with consumers and cutting out the middleman as a way of getting fresher ingredients directly to people's doors rather than having to go via via stores and things. So it does seem that this is an industry that's changing and tech is a key part of it. But is this something that you see happening more in the US or is it something that the UK is benefiting from on some level? I'm not sure. I think a lot of these things happen on a big scale in the US. I mean, they have particularly intensive farming processes over there and a particularly, um, you know, they make a huge impact on the environment over there. And in California, there's a massive drought. So there's lots of kind of thinking about how to make food in a more sustainable way. But I think there are lots of companies in the UK that are experimenting as well. I think Farm Drop's one of them. There's lots of companies experimenting with insects, which are more efficient protein uh, a, a more efficient protein than, than meat. Uh, but there is a big kind of cultural shift that has to take place for people to start looking at these alternatives. Yeah, nobody wants to have a grasshopper sandwich, do they? <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. No, true. I have to ask you before we, we finish up as well, did you get to eat any of this stuff they made? Did it taste good? It really does. Like they, I've tasted quite a, a couple of the products and... Which ones have you tried? The cookies and the mayonnaise. The mayonnaise you can now buy in Walmart, you can buy in the Dollar Tree, you can buy in Target. I don't know what those places are. Well, basically, you can just buy it in like the cheap, the budgets, regular supermarkets, and even the kind of low-cost supermarkets, like the Aldi's equivalent, I guess. I see. Okay. And they taste good? They taste really, really good. I was very... I would never buy a vegan mayonnaise, but Just Mayo, it's kind of branded in a way that you don't think that you're buying a vegan product, which can be off-putting to some people. Hmm. Excellent. Well, that's a very uh, meaty explanation of, uh, of this story. I'm extremely happy about that. Um, just before we let you go, Liv, obviously, um, you used to live here in the UK, you moved to the US. What's it like eating in the US all the time versus the UK? You get a lot more food. I know that's a real cliche, but it is unbelievable how big the portions are. And that's in health conscious California. Hmm. Olivia Solon, thank you very much. Where can people find you on the interwebs? probably best on Twitter. I'm uh, twitter.com forward slash Olivia Solon. No underscore. And uh, do check out Liv's feature in uh, in Wired magazine. I think it came out today, actually. It's got uh, 
It's got a chef on the cover, and it's a food special issue, and Liv's feature is in uh, is in there. Liv, thanks so much. Thank you. Ian, um, I've had nothing but pleasurable experiences during the recording of this podcast. It's I, been good, hasn't it? It's been abs- an oral delight. It's been an oral delight in all ways. A U R. Yes, <laughs> I was just thinking those two words. Indeed, they're too similar. They are indeed. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody! Um, all my base are belong to you. Of course, I missed out the beginning of that little uh, romantic. It was meant to be roses are red, violets are blue. Uh, all my base are belong to you. Yes. Oh well. Otherwise, it it, otherwise it's just a bad translation, isn't it? Keep the emails coming. Podcast at natelangson.com and the reviews on iTunes, please. Uh, we do absolutely love those. Ian, I will see you in a week. You certainly will, Nate. Cheerio, Pip. Hold up. 